Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are the Trust for Public Land, USA for UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, and Zero, the End of Prostate Cancer. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor, your host. And with me today is my good friend, Mark Shamley. Mark is the Vice President for Community Impact at Lyft Orlando. And Mark comes to this role having spent most of his career working inside of corporations to help institutions and people living outside of corporations or working outside of corporations. And we're going to have a great conversation with Mark about how corporate philanthropy works, how it's changed over the years, and also talk about his motivation to continue to work in that space and talk a bit about what he's doing today inside of Lyft Orlando. So Mark, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Hey, Art. How are you? It's great to be on the podcast with you, my friend. So, Mark, this is your latest role, and you know, you've been in the sector for quite some time. And I'll say that you are probably most known for your one of your previous roles, anyway, at the Association for Corporate Contributions Professionals, where you were able to lead many companies, about 200 companies, if I remember correctly, that were members of that organization through their education and collaboration and inside of their individual organizations to put their corporate dollars to use in communities. And I will just say that through the years that I've known you, you've always been sort of slightly ahead of the curve and understanding how companies work in this regard. I guess so my first question for you has to be, what have you seen over the years and how has corporate philanthropy, if you would, changed since you came into the field to now? Hey, Art, thank you for that setup and and the context with your question. And yes, it has been a long and winding road in my career. And a very fascinating one. I will say that I intentionally made a decision back hmm, 
maybe late 1990s, early 2000s, that I wanted to be in the corporate responsibility or corporate citizenship space. And just so you know, there was no terminology like that being used at that time. I mean, we were, and many of us who have found ourselves in those roles working for companies came into those roles through various different experiences. Some were marketing folks, legal people, nonprofit executives. So there was no standard for doing the job other than the fact that companies had recognized that just like other parts of the business, there needed to be more accountability for the resources that were being dedicated to this work. And also allowing them to be able to be more strategic they had to put in systems and structure and people who kind of knew how to navigate the organization, both internally and the partnerships and key stakeholders externally. And so when I got into this space, it was really about how to be more prudent about resources. We called it checkbook philanthropy in those early days where there was a lot of reciprocity. CEOs would make a, a contribution to a particular cause that they were solicited uh, to support. And then in return, uh, they reached out and made the same kind of ask. And so there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. That's fine, but you know, you weren't getting much value out of those kinds of activities. And so along came the sort of this idea of companies saying, hey, I think we could play a better role and a bigger role in societal issues in a way that connects with our values as a company and allows us to demonstrate that in the support of cause areas that made sense for the, for the company. You saw a lot of consumers orienting consumer products and campaigns that were orienting themselves around cause initiatives. And that just became the thing, right? And so, you know, I quickly spotted that this was kind of going to be a place for me to sort of hang my hat professionally and, and did so intentionally. I had some opportunities to go into different parts of the business. And I said, actually, when I was at Tupperware, this is where I want to be and, uh, and sort of built my career around that. One of the, the major shifts, I would say, that started to take place early in my career was we knew that consumers were really interested in making buying decisions based on if price, quality, access to products were all equal, they would make a decision to pick a product based on the causes that that product or the cause that product was affiliated with. And if you remember Carol Cohn from Cohn Communications, she was one of those pioneers who were really advancing some of the research that businesses were using to understand consumer behaviors. And so, so we knew consumers were like, hey, this is really important. And then you started to see employees say, hey, this is really important for me in my own decision-making on where I wanna work, right? And I wanna work for a company that is socially responsible in giving back, right? And how could I be involved and facilitate my own personal interest in getting engaged in a community or a cause area. And so companies recognize the importance of that around recruitment and retention of employees. So we're like, oh, wow, 
So you got consumers, you got employees that are interested in this area. And so we started just to sort of live on that two-legged stool at, at a time. And then the third piece that came in was around investors. And that really started to take off under this whole idea around uh, sustainability and ESG. And that's when you started to get the invested community coming in and saying, oh, this is about risk mitigation. This is about materiality and all the things that drive profitability long-term for the business. And when that piece came in, and sort of like, I want to say 2010, 2015-ish or so around there, that's when everything really started to take off in this field. And then you saw just a complete different approach to how companies aligned themselves and structured these departments and sourced people, executives, who had more business acumen, who had more an understanding of how to navigate across the entire enterprise to find those intersections between the social issues and what made that part of the business run. And so, so for me, it was just an exciting time. It's one of those moments when I look back and go, I think that was a pretty wise decision on my part to, to stay in this field and be part of its evolution. Well, I want to go back to my old days and real old days, I guess, because I can very distinctly remember how corporate CEOs were actively engaged in nonprofit work. And it may be for the very reason you said, because I, I was a part of an organization that used to have a couple of meetings a year. You would find four or five Fortune 500 CEOs in a room. But they were there because one was a friend of another. You know, So we had, if you could get a hold of one and they really bought into your mission, they would bring their friends to the table. And I guess their friends would bring them to the table. And so you actually had the engagement of these CEOs in the nonprofit work. They would find an hour or two you know, every couple of twice a year to actually be there and participate, you know, and be advisors to nonprofits. And they would also lend their executives to participate if they really believed in a cause. But then it seemed like something happened and I'm not quite sure what it was, but it might have been the pressure that CEOs got under where it felt more like people were being more, that their time was being more accounted for, you know, and you began to see them disappear more. And I used to call it, they didn't care as much about whether the thing they were doing was the right thing. What you heard a lot more was, what value do you bring to the corporation if we're going to get involved with you? And my sense was always that the CEOs were under pressure from their shareholders to not essentially give away the company's money and not get anything in return. Now, even though we know any corporate foundation has to distinguish between what it's doing to make money from the money that is given away, right? There should be some distinction. But a lot of times where the biggest part of their money was coming from was the marketing department, <laughs> you know. So they did look for some type of return on investment. And you also heard, at least from my perspective, from, a, from the standpoint of a person seeking money from a company, it was, well, we're either giving to an organization that is aligned with our mission or is delivering value in the communities where we operate. 
you know, those were the two things that if you weren't in that bucket, it was going to be hard for you to get money. Now, later, as you say, I, I, I followed that. It's it's probably maybe it's better now. I don't know, even though I think we miss having those executives at the table. We do. But maybe it's more fair and equitable now that companies seem to have more freedom to focus on giving in ways that actually shareholders agree with. Right. Shareholders kind of like it when they're giving money away to certain things. But I do somehow lament the days when we used to have these CEOs at the table and they would bring the full resource base of their companies to help solve these social problems. But I guess they're just doing it now in other ways. Yeah, I think so, Art. I think that companies are now staffing up with really sophisticated leaders in these departments and who have the gravitas and the ability to serve as external leaders, shaping both the internal and external strategies as it relates to how the company engages around social issues. I think CEOs are obviously very taxed individuals, right? And the requirements of their time are extremely demanding, uh, as you mentioned, with stakeholders and meeting, meeting quarterly results and all of those kinds of things. It's a, it's, a, it's a very lonely job, I guess, at the top of an organization, right? And, and they have to be very careful. Well compensated, yeah, but lonely. <laughs> <laughs> they have to be very careful about where they spend their time. What I've seen is CEOs get behind really big bets, right? Really big initiatives. It's like the uh, the coalition the coalition uh, for CEOs on diversity and inclusion, right? Where a number of CEOs got behind that initiative, right? The CEOs that are getting behind climate change, right? That are lending their their name, their recognition, their their reputation, excuse me, their brands to help address some of these really broad, complex issues. And I agree with you. Companies have to be really intentional about this work. If you look at the overall philanthropic bucket of where dollars come from, companies are only bringing, I want to say about 5% total. Yeah, it's about uh, right. To the philanthropy dollars collectively, right? So if you're a nonprofit organization, yes, it's great to have a, a terrific and a mutually beneficial partnership with a corporation, but you have to remember when you're doing this work and you're soliciting from that particular slice of the pie, they represent a very small slice of that pie. And often you have to, as a nonprofit organization, to be prepared to understand really the priorities of that company and what makes sense in terms of their giving strategy, to your point, where do they operate? What are the values? What have they traditionally done in terms of nonprofit partnerships? So once you get that understanding and then figure out a way into the organization, then you'll have an increased probability of success and reaching out to that to that audience. The CEOs, yeah, they're just extremely, again, taxed and busy folks, which I get. But I've been lucky to work with a number of leaders who not only expressed their desire verbally, but actually rolled up their sleeves and got actively engaged in, in social issues that were important to them. And it was up for uh, to, the, to the team who was responsible to make sure that we channeled our CEOs in the right way to get them involved in causes that were important to them personally and to the business. Well, 
how did this become such an interest area for you? You mentioned that you, you looked into this and you felt that this is where you wanted to spend your time. And, and as a result, you're happy that you chose that field, corporate philanthropy. But what was it that made you look at this and say, oh, wow, this is, this is going to work for me. I like this. I want to do this. Yeah, I started my, where I was introduced to this space, working, believe it or not, for a nonprofit organization. Mm. And that was Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And I joined the team in the mid-90s at a time when cause-related marketing was really just taken off. And I was part of the strategic marketing group. And in that, we were responsible for establishing partnerships between the youth organization and different corporations and brands. Uh, We centered our strategy around program sponsorship, strategic alliances, cause marketing or promotion campaigns, or all of the above, right? And I was like, wow, I had no idea this even existed, where companies and nonprofits were coming together and thinking about ways to uh, develop campaigns that mutually benefited both. And I was hooked at that point in time, right? So once I saw, saw that connection, you know, I came out of college with a marketing degree. I just wasn't very inspired about just doing just regular work, selling a widget or marketing or promoting some other kind of product. But this whole notion of having some social connection, societal benefit was really motivating for me. Maybe it was just my DNA, how I was raised, uh, always volunteering, supporting youth groups. It's just part of how I grew up. And so for me, it was just a, a merger, if you will, of the idea that businesses play a substantial role in transforming the lives of people all over the world when done responsibly through prosperity and economic development. But if you also to sort of layer in this notion of social responsibility, where both benefit, I was, that was it. That was the formula for me that allowed me to get up every day and be really inspired. A lot of times behind the scenes, launching programs and doing work to benefit others. So for me, it was just a natural fit. Well, that's great, man. And you've done some really interesting things. Everything from working with plastics, company making some of the plastics that we use every day for. All right. I went from Tupperware parties with women to the (laughs) NBA to, I mean, you name it. Like there's a cross selection of lots of different (laughs) engagement. So. No, that's, that's quite remarkable. Uh, What were some of your more memorable events. I remember attending an, an ACCP conference with you right. in Nashville, which I thought may have been, in my opinion, the apex of your experience with ACCP it was so well attended. The event was well produced. And you guys always seem to do that with pretty much an understaffed operation. So I was always impressed by what you did to support those companies. But what what would you say was sort of the the apex and maybe some of the more fun moments that you've had and some of the most memorable accomplishments? So my time at ACCP was phenomenal. So now the organization is called 
the Association of Corporate Citizenship Professionals. We changed the name. Ah, okay. But at the time when you and I were going and you were coming, I think you spoke at a at one or two of those conferences, Art, if yeah, I'm I did. not mistaken. That whole that organization was born from the idea that there needs to be the professionalization of the field and how do we as practitioners come together in an ecosystem to share our knowledge and best practices with each other in a safe environment. What's going well, what's not going so well, and how do we ramp up our learning uh, through the experiences of others? So we we created a, uh, an environment where people were willing to share, right? We closed the doors often, we had competitors in the room, but for the moment of being there, we said, hey, we have a value of what happens here stays here. Everyone's safe to be able to share whatever whatever it is they want to share, and we need to be respectful of that. And so we really drove home that that mindset, quite frankly, and that's carried on today. And I think that was successful for us in our growth. I mean, we went through a period of time during the uh, the financial crisis where we lost a lot of members, but as the markets turned around. They all came back. So for me, that was sort of like the highlight of my career, my ability to be able to help shape the profession. I went to a a conference recently, and it's been, I want to say, five or six years, five years since I ran ACCP. And I saw some of my ACCP members and colleagues, and they were sharing how much they benefited from the meetings and the forums and the discussions and and all the stuff that we put on. So I just collectively, that was uh, an incredible time. Our conferences were always fun, as you saw in Nashville. We designed them that way so that our attendees, you know, many of which had small staffs, you'll be amazed what corporations, you would think they would have these large budgets and large staffs, and unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So we knew coming to the annual conference was a time for them just to kind of take a deep breath and enjoy being in a room with their colleagues. And so we designed that meeting or that experience, I should say, in a way that the attendees can enjoy themselves, right? Let their hair down a little bit. Uh, not too much, but just let their hair down a little bit. <laughs> so, well, so, listen, I want to ask you, though, I do want to ask you about the work you're doing now. I mean, sure. I, I'm really fascinated by by the work you're doing as vice president for impact for Lyft Orlando yeah, and how that sort of aligns with everything else you've done and what you hope to accomplish in that role. So it seems like Lyft Orlando is a, is a 501c3 mission-based organization, right? They focus, or we focus, I should say, on a place-based approach to investing in communities that have been historically marginalized and disinvested in for decades. And often these communities are communities of color. And as I indicated, Lyft Orlando is a business-led organization. So my work, my all of my career has been sort of in this intersection between society and business. And what Lyft has done over the last decade of its of its existence is to focus 
on a footprint of a geographical location in a city and concentrate its resources and attention around housing, providing affordable housing, cradle to career education, long-term economic viability, and health and wellness programs. And so around those four pillars, what we do is leverage resources and partnerships on behalf of the residents of that community, because what we do for the community without the community, we do against the community. And so it's an important sort of mindset for us, right? To say, we don't do this work without your voices of the community. We are here to provide resources, to address all of the injustices that have taken place over time and demonstrate not only to the community of Central Florida, but the surrounding areas that you can focus on a particular area and you could bring in principles that you see in business around measurement and accountability and investment of resources, and you can change the systematic approach that put that community in that current state, you could change that for the better. And so for me, this is like a complete like progression, if you will, like it's part of the continuum of the work that I did running a social responsibility department for a company, leading an organization, representing practitioners doing that work and helping to educate and support those executives doing that work to landing with a mission-based organization who is focusing on real transformation uh, through sustained approach and helping to uh, evolve and change a community for the better. And so for me, it just seemed like a no-brainer, right? When I had the opportunity to uh, consider this next phase in my life, I said, I wanted to be somewhere where I could make a difference. I wanted to be somewhere where I could see the sort of fruits of my labor in the lives of people and ultimately have the stories to talk about transformation. And so this just is, I'm just completely thrilled to be part of the mission of this organization because it lines so much well with the work that I've done previously and the skill sets and the relationships and ultimately the work that we're going to be doing going forward. So, Well, I can't have you on the show without getting into the subject of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which a lot of your organization seems to be set up to help us deal with. And, you know, we're at a moment in time, Mark, where I'm starting to feel a little bit of a pendulum shift. We were really excited a few years, not excited, but we were really energized, I will say, a few years ago when companies seem to want to respond and society at large seem to want to respond to the racial reckoning that we saw in America, you know, and people were hopeful that this racial reckoning would be sustained and it would bring around, bring about lasting change. I still think it has that potential, but I'm also beginning to feel that it may not be as clear to companies and to society at large, for that matter, exactly what we should be doing. And 
I think we can put out there that there is a general sense that we want more equality and we want everyone to have a voice and we want everyone to participate regardless of race or or gender or sexual orientation or disability but we're not quite sure how to bring that about because frankly what art taylor needs to feel comfortable and included may be very different than what mark shamley needs to feel comfortable and and included and we began to use phrases like we want everyone to show up as their authentic selves but if you're in a business, you can't have everybody showing up as their authentic selves, right? You won't be able to get anything done. We all have to sacrifice something in order for the company to operate. And so it seems to me companies are in a tight bind right now. They want to get things done. They want to also make an, make a difference when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, because that's going to be the success of their companies in the long term because of the way society is trending, right? But on the other hand, they don't seem to know quite how to bring that about. So we're getting lots of trainings. Let's give everybody training so that they can be more sensitized to the needs. Let's let's do a program. Let's bring in a speaker. All these things are helpful. But it seems to me what companies are good at is measurement. <laughs> you know, measurement. We need a number. You know, how many people should we be bringing in? How many of these do we need to have? And what we what we do know is that numbers don't quite make it happen, right, in, in this particular field. We tried that years ago with quotas and affirmative action, and it was rejected, even though I think it had a lot of success in those days. But it was rejected by society at large that we didn't want quotas. And there were some reasons against it, and there were some reasons for it. So now we're not going to do that. And so companies are kind of left with this concept without clear measurement of what needs to happen. And I wonder, Mark, if organizations like yours can actually get some of that work done in communities by saying, look, we know what needs to be done. Give us the money and we'll go do it. You don't have to do it anymore. Give us the money and do what we say, you know. And I wonder if if that's a, a big assist organizations like yours. But also, I think, is there a way that companies can actually have more measurement around taking certain actions internally that will actually deliver results? And by that, I mean, let's look at our organizations from a systemic standpoint. Let's do the work. Let's inventory all of our systems, our cultures, our our values and processes and ask, what are we doing that could potentially be holding people back? You know, and if there are things that we're doing that are holding people back, let's decide if we want to change those things so that they're not holding people back. Or if there's such that we have to continue doing these things, even though they might be holding some people back because it, it brings us the, the profitability that we must have but we're going to make it up in some other way and and be honest about that. You know, so I don't know. I'm just uh, this is kind of a gathering sense that I have, Mark. And, you know, you're probably way more knowledgeable. How co- you're definitely way more knowledgeable about how companies work than I am. But this is a gathering sense that I have because we are trying to take something that's very subjective and insert it into a company 
that is based on objective <laughs> results, you know, and I think it's going to be difficult. And I worry with the pendulum beginning to shift now that more companies will just throw up their hands and say, well, we don't even know what to do. Let's just forget about it. Yeah. And I think that will be a real tragedy. So I don't know what I said a lot, but I'm just curious what you're. No, I think you're I think you're dead on, actually, Art. I think there is a pendulum shift and swinging in the other direction. Companies. Maybe you can argue whether they were right in doing so reacted um, to the racial reckoning that took place in in 2020. And you saw. I would say a reactive approach by lots of businesses to uh, begin to think about and bring on leaders to take on the chief diversity officer roles, but not often resource those roles properly. You often would hear, hey, go out there and be scrappy, right? Go out and just navigate and find the resources you need to execute your initiatives. And I I don't believe companies fund other initiatives that way, right? If they are if there is a desire to expand into a new market globally or to launch a new program, they don't tell the team to go and be scrappy and go figure out how to get the resources you need to execute. And and that's unfortunately been too much of the stories of people who have found themselves in the situations where there were good, there was good intent, but the lack of structure and systems in place to go along with that good intent. What I am hoping to see is that companies begin to take a step back and have a very honest conversation about their work in DEI and think about ways in which you could both address the systems and structure issues because you have to do that as well as ensuring that people on the on the executive leadership team and levels below because it's really down to that level below are not only trained but have an understanding of lived experiences of people who are not part of the in-group or their particular demographic group. And it is only through that understanding and exposure to other people in their life and lived experiences as you sort of begin to understand that this isn't just something that's being made up or being designed as a way to give individuals advantage over other individuals. That there is true differences in how people sort of operate and navigate within a corporate enterprise and you have to acknowledge that and plan for it. The, th- the thing that Lyft brings to the table is we are an absolute living example of when you are investing in the lives of people, especially people who have historically been marginalized and sort of pushed out of society. And with all of the labels that come with that, that you can see a transformation. You can see young people who have incredible skills and aspirations and hopes that they want a better future for themselves. And it's through this kind of work that we're seeing people go, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that success. And so 
once you sort of address the lived experience and get people to open up their thinking and expand, say, I had no idea, I had no clue that things were so bad here. And in fact, we should be celebrating people who have been historically disinvested in that they're able to navigate through all of that stuff that allowed them to be even successful. That's the kind of stuff that people will start to appreciate and understand. And then they bring that understanding into the workplace. And then they start being able to have real conversations that are followed up with action and strategy and addressing products and services that quite frankly have not been designed in a way that's equitable and fair for people across the board. So that to me is an important aspect of this work. That's one of the reasons why I took on this uh, new opportunity with Lyft because I do think it provides an incredible platform for those kinds of experiences to take place within the corporation. And I think, frankly, one of the most important assets that companies have to recognize and build into their employee base, frankly, is the ability to communicate across difference. You know, I've, I've said many times that we have a whole spectrum of people who work inside of companies, right? And, and in any enterprise, and every company is going to reflect America, which means that some people will not see a problem with racism, sexism, et cetera. The advantages that they believe they have are perfect. They should keep those advantages. While other people think it's totally wrong and we need to be doing something about this now, both from a personal standpoint and from a systemic standpoint. Right. And then there are people gradations in between, right, along that spectrum. And I sometimes worry that the sides aren't talking to each other. We tend to hear from the, the aggrieved nowadays who were voiceless, right? We They've gotten more room to speak. I shouldn't say they, I should say me, because I'm <laughs> one of them. <laughs> yeah. We've gotten more opportunities to speak out and express what has happened and what's happening, right? But we don't hear from the others who are listening, maybe, or not listening at all. We don't hear from them. And that makes me nervous, not nervous, but it makes me wonder whether they're quietly opposing it and doing things behind the scenes rather than speaking about it and talking about it in a way that maybe helps, helps us understand why they see the world the way they do. Right. So that we can actually have progress. We can't have progress until all sides are really expressing why they feel the way they do, why they see things the way they do. But that takes some skill or else you got a mess. Right. You can't just have people talking and getting emotional. It takes some skill to be able to talk across these kinds of heated differences. I think companies are, are, are building those muscles, right? And it is, it is difficult work right? because you can't just get representation, right? To your point, oh, let's just bring folks in and expect you mix it up and then everything is going to be okay. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. In fact, you'll have more friction and you'll have more problems. All right. What you have to do is really create a culture of belonging for everyone. And with that culture of belonging comes some really tough conversations that 
the leadership of that organization needs to advance. But to your point, there needs to be accountability as well. So there needs to be systems and there needs to be targets and there need to be goals and incentives that are tied to that to ensure that things are happening the way that they should be happening. There needs to be training programs that are looked at and reviewed to make sure that they don't have bias and uh, implicit bias or explicit bias tied into how those programs are developed and and how employees get access to those programs is all of those things need to be looked at and really scrutinized in a way to determine is there built-in elements that are driving a exclusive narrative in our business right so so those things need to happen and it happens at the top like if the ceo and the executive team are not on board these things die they will they you will not have the buy-in and it's got to be those leaders across the organization that have those incentives tied in for accountability purpose and then you have to make sure that you're constantly going back and checking and making sure that you're dealing with any issues that may come up it is not just about setting up employee resource groups and then putting together you know a mentoring or sponsorship structure for those individual employee resource groups you really need to go deeper than that as a business. And I think companies are starting to figure those out. They're great resources, but they often get pointed to as the end all the be all around a diversity and inclusion program, and they just have limitations. And often those groups sort of get stuck without the right kind of structure and mentorship and sponsorship that goes along with them. Well, Mark, we could go on for a while, man, but (laughs) I'm gonna let you get back to work here. But this has been great. I knew it would be because, you know, I admire and love you so much. It's just always great to be in your presence and learn from you. And I know that our listeners have learned a lot just listening to you today as well. Well, Art, every time I have a chance to sit down and break bread with you, my brother, I just, I enjoy it. I learn tremendously and I just admire the work that you're doing at Wise Giving Alliance. I had the opportunity to be on the board for quite some time and and work closely with you. Not only on the board, you chaired the board. <laughs> and chaired the board and and I, I, I miss y'all and but I know that you're doing great work on behalf of the sector and, and just continue to do what you're doing and doing the outreach with the podcast. I'm I'm just so proud of the work uh, that you're doing, man. So just keep it up. Well thank you. So you've been listening to Marcus I call him Marcus Aurelius Shamley, <laughs> just out of out of our personal fund. But it's Mark Shamley, who is the vice president for community impact at Lyft Orlando, my dear friend and colleague. And I know you've learned a lot. Mark, thank you for being here. And to all of you who may be listening for the first time, you probably tuned in just to hear Mark. Let me tell you that we have many, many more episodes that you could check into. And I hope you subscribe to the show. It's the Heart of Giving podcast. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. And by the way, if you want to support the podcast, we'd be happy to take a gift. You can do that by going to our website, give.org, and we will put that money to great use, I assure you. Thank you for listening. All right, that's it. We got it. All right. 
You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.